But if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, if you would turn to Revelation chapter 2 this morning. Revelation chapter 2 is where we're going to be. It is an honor to be able to open up the Word of God for you this morning, and I'm excited about the opportunity that we have to to continue to study the book of Revelation. Before we get into Revelation 2, I'd like you to just, I'm only going to give you about 30 seconds, so you're going to have to think quickly on this and respond to someone who's sitting next to you. And here's a question I have for you. See if you can even remember the answer to this in any way. When is the last time you got a letter in the mail? Not electronic mail. Not a card because it was your birthday or anniversary or something of that sort. But an actual letter in the mail. I'll give you a second to think about it. If you're under the age of probably 16 or 17, you don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, and the answer might actually be never uh, for, for some of you. So have we, were we able to backtrack enough years? Can we go back that far? Real quick, tell someone next to you, when's the last time you got a letter in the mail? Don't stand up, just look. All right. So I'm going to guess... I'm going to guess that for most of us, it has been a long, long time since we've gotten a letter in the mail at all. I remember when I was younger, uh, I used to, and I don't know, maybe this was weird, maybe, maybe it wasn't, I'm not sure, but my brothers and I, we used to kind of battle over who was going to run down the end of our driveway, and we would ask mom and dad, hey, the, the, mail, the mail person just dropped off our mail, the mailman just dropped off our mail, can we run down to the end of the driveway to get the mail? And each day we would run down to the end of the driveway, we'd open it up, and I don't know what we were thinking, because it was never for us. None of it was ever for us. But there was this excitement about this idea of running down to the end of the driveway, opening up the mailbox, pulling out, which my dad owned his own business, so he still does. So he got like a ton of mail, which I couldn't understand as a kid why he wasn't more excited about it. Because I was like crazy excited about the opportunity of there even being a chance of there being mail for me. And my dad got like 15 things every day. And he was like, uh, just set them on the desk. It doesn't really matter. Um, and most of the time, he didn't even open half of them. He just threw them away. Like I didn't, I just couldn't wrap my head around that concept that he wouldn't be as excited about it as I was. Even to the point that every now and then I was like, Dad, I, I know you're going to throw that. Can I at least open it? He's like, sure, go ahead and open it, then throw it in the trash. Because I don't care what it is. It was junk mail anyhow. And now that I'm older, I understand it a little bit better. I get that. But every once in a while, every once in a while, there would be something in there, and it actually had my name on it. That was normally around my birthday. Um, and... But the excitement of having something that was sent to me 
and me being able to open this thing up and see what's in it and realize just how great that was. After I graduated from college then, um, Amy was still in school. We both went to Appalachian Bible College together, and she had another year of college between when I graduated and when she graduated, and uh, soon after she graduated, we got married, but I lived about six and a half hours away from Appalachian Bible College, and so we actually, I know again how old, we actually wrote letters back and forth to one another. It was way back in the day before, uh, you know, texting and, and all that stuff, and we didn't have cell phones and all of those things. So we actually wrote letters back and forth. And even though now it was, I got a letter a little more often than I did when I was younger, I would get one kind of regularly now. The excitement for it still remained. The excitement to, to get a letter from someone who cared that much about me and to hear what she had to say was such a neat thing. In Revelation chapter 2 and 3, we're kind of making a change in what the, the focus is. And in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus, through the author of John, writes a letter to seven different churches. Can you imagine getting a letter from Jesus? So, the author John writes down what Jesus tells him to write. So these are not John's words that we're about to read. These are not something that John came up with on his own. John's role here in Revelation 2 and 3 is to be a scribe. He writes what Jesus tells him to. And he writes these letters to these seven churches that are in Asia Minor. And there's basically what we've come to realize about this. It's really just a postal route of churches, um, uh, significant churches in this area, that Jesus is penning a letter to these people. And I think about the excitement that used to be as I thought about me getting a letter from any human being. And I think, man, what must it have been like to have Jesus write a letter directly to these churches? And over the next set of weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to look at these seven letters. And we're going to see what Jesus wrote to these seven churches and what they would have grasped from this, what they would have understood, and what he's telling them about what's going on. And so I want to start reading. I want to actually read at the very end of John, Revelation chapter 1. I know I said Revelation 2. Let me read the last two verses in Revelation 1 just so we get the idea of what's happening here. So this is at the end of Revelation 1 verse 19. It says this, Write therefore the things you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this, and the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands. The seven stars are the angels or messengers or pastors of the seven churches. And the seven lampstands 
are the seven churches. And I just, real quick review that we've talked about over the last couple of weeks, when he talks here about it and he explains it, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Angels is just a word that they would have used for the word messenger, that basically we're dealing with the concept of the pastor of the church here. So when he refers to the seven stars, he's talking about the pastors of the church. And when he says the seven lampstands, the seven lampstands are these seven churches. And now in Revelation 2 and 3, he's going to go on and he's going to specifically interact with each of these seven churches. And as he does it, he's going to keep, Jesus is going to keep a very similar kind of process as he goes through this. You're going to notice that as I read, we're going to look at the very first one here in a moment, but I want you to look for something because he keeps the same kind of routine or the way he writes in each one of these letters. He's going to introduce himself and describe himself at the very beginning. This is Jesus. So he's going to give a description of himself in some way, and this description is going to be something that he's already mentioned in chapter 1. So he's going to describe himself in a way, He's going to commend the churches for something or praise them, tell them something that they're doing good. He's going to give them a rebuke of some sort. He's going to tell almost every one of them something that they're not doing well, something they need to fix, something they need to change. He's going to give them a warning about what will happen if they don't change it. And then finally, he's going to give them an encouragement. He's going to lift them up in some way, try to encourage them. And we're going to see this as we go through these these seven letters to these churches. We're going to see this pattern just kind of show itself over and over and over through Revelations 2 and 3. So let me read our section for this morning as we look at this. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So this first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. We should be somewhat familiar with the church at Ephesus because about 40-some years before this book of Revelation would have ever been written, the apostle Paul would have been in Ephesus. Ephesus was... uh, very significant city of the time. It would have been a seaport. There would have been a lot of action going on in the city of Ephesus, and it was, it was a big city. It was a big deal. 
And the Apostle Paul went there in the 50s AD and he went there and he spread the gospel. And we saw many, many, he saw many people come to know the Lord there and a church was started in Ephesus. Later on, as Paul was traveling about and doing different things on his different missionary journeys, he ends up writing a letter to the church in Ephesus. We have it in the Word of God. It's known as Ephesians. And so we're, we're somewhat familiar with this church. And this is the same church that Jesus is writing to here. This same church just would have been 40 years later that Jesus is writing to them. Now, here's what we need to realize as we look at this. And I want us to think about this today because I don't want us, I don't want us to just look at Ephesians and think about this church from 90 to 100 AD, 2,000 years ago, and, and get our mind set on, okay, that's what was happening in that church in that region 2,000 years ago and ignore the connection to us. Here's what we need to realize. Ephesus was a New Testament church. Jesus that died was buried, rose again. He's gone. The Holy Spirit is indwelling the believers in Ephesus. And this group of believers in Ephesus is now going through living the Christian life in their community, in their area. With the help and the assistance and the work of the Holy Spirit indwelling them, they're living as a body of believers in this area. We are too. We're not in Ephesus. We're in Martinsburg. We are a New Testament church. We are a group of believers who have the Holy Spirit indwelling us, and we are living in our area, in our culture, in our time, and we are living for the cause of Christ, I hope, here in our area. And so as we study these letters, I want us to think about how much of a description that's being made here is describing Honestly, me. And if, if Jesus were to write a letter to the Centerpoint Bible Church, how much would it resemble some of these letters that are being written to these churches in Asia Minor 2,000 years ago? And what should we be taking from this as we look at it, as we study it? How much of this stuff is true for us? And so as we look at these things... I don't want you to just understand historically Ephesus and the issues and the good things they had going on in their church. I want you to think about you as a believer in Jesus Christ. I want you to analyze how much of this is true about you and what needs to become true about you. So let's look at the beginning. Let's look at the, from, from the start. So we see, I said that he's going to start in a very similar way. And the first thing he does is he describes himself. The author describes himself. Notice, he says to the angel or to the pastor of the church at Ephesus, here's what's going to be written. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. This comes straight out of chapter 1. This is the way Jesus described himself in chapter 1. But what we need to understand is he's saying a couple of important things in this. Notice he says, Jesus is clarifying right away, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. So these pastors, these messengers, these people that are proclaiming truth to you, I've got them right here. I've got them. I can protect them. I can care for them. 
And the fact that he can hold them in his right hand, he's far greater than them. You know, it's interesting. I don't know how much you, you, you've studied about the Ephesian church. You know that the Ephesian church had some pretty significant names associated with their church as far as leadership is concerned. Paul, I believe, started and pastored it for a while. Timothy was there. The apostle John, who's writing this account down, was a pastor there for a while. Now you tell me a church that has pastoral names like Paul, Timothy, and the apostle John. And you know what Jesus says to them right at the very beginning? I've got them in my hand. I've got them. I care for them. I protect them. I love them. And I want you to know I'm far greater than all of them. And then he goes on and he says this to this church. And the one to him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Remember the seven golden lampstands? These are the churches. Notice he says, and I think it's interesting that he points this out at the very beginning of all of these letters that he's going to write. I'm walking among you. Now think about that for a second. He walks among them. This isn't some guy, this, this one who's writing this letter, isn't just some person who's way out in the midst of these heavenly beings, far removed. He created all of this and just let it go and set it into motion. This is an intimate, caring, loving God who's in amongst the people that he is caring for, that he is leading, that he is directing. He's around them. By the way, he's, he's around us also. This isn't just, this isn't the letters he's about to write. This isn't some far off speculation. You're going to notice here in a moment when we get to this, the next piece, he's not going to use phrases like, I have heard that. He's going to use phrases like, I know. You know how he knows? He's right there. He's among them. And he starts this letter to the Ephesians by saying, I've got those who are in leadership right here in my hand, and I'm among you. I'm around. I'm there. And then he goes from his description to the thing that he wants to commend the church about. I want you to listen to what he says to this church. I know we've already read it, but take notice to what he says in verses 2 and 3. And then he mentions something in verse 6, so I'm going to skip down and read that as well. So listen to what he tells this church, the, the praise or the commending that he gives them. He says this, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance. You cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and you found them to be false. I know you are patiently enduring and bearing up for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. Verse 6, you also have this, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Did you catch all the things that he just told this body of believers? They're doing well. 
I wrote a list down just because I wanted to make sure that, uh, that I, I got it here. But notice he starts again that he says this phrase in verse 2. He says, I know. If you, if you were to quickly glance your eyes down to some of the other letters that he writes to the churches, in verse 9 of chapter 2, he's talking to a different church, and you'll notice how verse 9 starts. I know. Verse 13, he's talking to a different church, and he starts to talk to them, and he says, I know this about you. And we could go through all of the seven churches. He says this phrase, I know this about you. He is very clearly aware of what's going on in these churches. He's among them. But notice what he says he knows about them. He knows their works. This church is a, a serving, an active church. He knows their toil, which it really kind of sounds like those are saying the same words. I know your works. I know your toil. The idea of toil is a concept of sacrifice to the point of exhaustion. Like it's, it's greater than just doing some work. It's working to the point of like you're willing to give all that you have just completely to the point of exhausting yourself. So this is a church that's willing to serve one another. They're active. They're sacrificing for one another. I know your patient endurance. They're dealing with suffering. Pastor Lowell talked last week about the idea that these churches are going through just intense persecution at this point in time. And he actually mentions twice here in this passage in verse 2, then again in verse 3, how they are enduring patiently or patiently enduring. This body of believers is dealing with this suffering that is ongoing. And they're being patient. And they're standing up under this. He says they cannot tolerate those who are evil. They can't handle sin. It's unacceptable. They don't deal, they, it's not okay in their midst. It has to go. And then he also says that they are testing false teachers. There are people coming in and saying, hey, listen, I'm an apostle. You need to listen to me. And so they do some tests, and they're like, no, you're not. You're out. You've got to go. Even to the point that he comes up, and in verse 6, he mentions a group of false teachers. Mentions this group known as the Nicolaitans. Honestly, as I studied this, there's a whole bunch of different thoughts on who these people actually are. They're going to come up again in one of the other letters, and there's a couple of, of philosophies, but commentators don't agree, really. So, I don't know. Here's what I do know about them. Jesus doesn't like them. <laughs> he, he said it right here. You, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Meaning, he hates their works. So they're false teachers in some way. Some people believe that this is like a priestly order that's like lording themselves over top of people. Honestly, from the study I've done, I don't know that that's the correct kind of interpretation. There are others out there who believe that this is a group that it's kind of like a cult that believe that you have to indulge in sin in order to fully understand it. And so this is a group who would have basically given themselves over to sensuality. I'm not sure. Here's what I know. They were teaching some false stuff. And the believers in Ephesus are like, no, you've got to go. This is unacceptable. 
I want you to think about how this church, what this church was just commended for. Think about this. They're a serving, active church who's willing to sacrifice for one another, who's willing to just fully, like completely jump into to doing. They can't handle evil. They're enduring the, the persecution that's coming on them. They hate evil and they can't allow false teaching. Wouldn't you want to be commended for that? Man, that's pretty good. They're doing a lot of really good stuff. And I'd like to challenge you, and I want you to think personally about you, because again, I said I don't want our whole focus to be, all right, we got a greater education on the church at Ephesus in 90-some A.D., Yeah, I I do want you to understand the church at Ephesus a little bit better, but this is a New Testament church being commended for stuff that's true about them. You know what I notice in this? God wants us to be serving one another. He wants us to be willing to sacrifice. He cares about the fact that we're willing to stand up under persecution and that we don't allow evil. Sin is not acceptable. He doesn't want false teaching associated with his church. And I want you to think about as you look at your life and as you examine your life, if God were to write a letter to you, or if he were to write a letter to the angel of the church of Centerpoint, would he say, I commend you for this? I commend you for the idea that False teaching is an unacceptable thing. You are true to the word of God. Would he commend us for saying, sin has no place here? Would he commend us for saying the fact that we serve one another and we sacrifice and we work hard for one another? And notice, he throws in here, and I think this is extremely important, he says, notice what he says in verse 3, he says, You're doing all this for my name's sake, and you've not grown weary. You're pushing on, and you're pushing on, and you're pushing on. And I pray that that's true. I pray that that's true about Centerpoint Bible Church. I pray that that's true about us. You understand that just like this, our church, the church at Ephesus is just made up of a group of people. So when he says this, the, each individual person at the church at Ephesus, as they would look at this and read this, their focus would be on, okay, is this true about me? Am, am I doing this? Am I helping others do this? Is this what I'm truly living in my life? And he commends them for this. Oh, to be commended for these things. The issue is, doesn't stop there. And in verse 4, verse 4 starts with a very, uh, I guess, frustrating word. And if you look how verse 4 starts, it starts with the word, but. And he goes from the commending of this church 
to a rebuke that he has for this church. And he states the rebuke in one line, but boy, does it cut to the heart. After all this stuff, then in verse 4 he says this, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You have abandoned the love you had at first. You know what Jesus just told the church at Ephesus? I don't think you love me anymore. Can you, can you feel that? Do, do you feel the weight of that statement? You've done all these things. You're working hard. You're sacrificing for one another. You're getting rid of evil and sin in your church. You're making sure that there aren't false teachers here. You're doing all of these things. But I don't feel like you love me anymore. I feel like you used to. But I don't feel like you love me anymore. I can't imagine what that would have felt like to that church when they read this. I, I really can't. I, <clears throat> I'm going to be honest with you. I, I tried to figure out a way to, to kind of put this into another, another idea to, to restate this in some way. Like, I don't know what this, like, the way this must have cut to them I don't know. I don't feel like you love me anymore. The God of the universe just commended them for all this good that they're doing, but said, where's the love in it? And I, I would venture to guess that some of them in their hearts, they would, have, they, they would have wanted to say, yeah, but look at this that I've done, and look at this that I've done, and look at this that I've done. The problem is, Jesus just told them all those things that they just did. All the things that would, they would have said, I do love you. Let me tell you how I love you. Let me show you what I do to love you. Jesus just said, I commended you for those. You're right. You do all those things. Like, what's their argument? What can they possibly say in response? Number one, they're talking to God, so how are they going to argue with him? But number two, anything that they would have said to say, here's my response, here's, here's my support, let me bring my attorney in, here's what he can say. Jesus just told them that. And still finished with, I don't think you love me. They've abandoned it. You know, it's interesting when I read this. It makes me realize, and, and maybe some of you are just going to say, well, duh, of course that's true. All those other things, they're not the ultimate goal. All those other things 
All those, all those working and toiling and patiently enduring and, and not handling sin and not allowing false teachers, they're not the ultimate goal. They're a secondary goal that comes from the ultimate goal. And the ultimate goal is to chase after Jesus Christ. To love Jesus with all of who you are. To want to know him in the greatest possible way. Because here's the thing. If I want to know Jesus with all that I am, is there any chance I'm going to accept sin? If I want to know Jesus and chase after him with all that I have, don't you think sacrificing and serving other people is going to come as a natural response to that? If I love Jesus with all of my heart, don't you think when I hear false teaching, I'm going to say, no, that's got to go because that has nothing to do with my Lord and Savior. All of these things, they're not the primary goal. They're secondary responses to the primary goal. And this church at Ephesus, they stopped chasing after the primary goal and they made themselves about the secondary responses. I want to ask you something, and I really like, I can't answer this for you. What are you chasing after? What's your, what's your first love? What, what are you really making as the primary goal? And, and as I look at this and I study this and I think about this and I see this, I need us to realize that there are a lot of churches out there that I believe if Jesus wrote a letter to them, he would have to include a phrase like this in it. And I think that we, at times, can get caught up in, yeah, but I'm on, I'm on this team or this committee and I do this. I show up for this every single week. I'm a part of this. And I don't want to start saying things because I don't want to offend anybody who's in here with me picking out stuff that you're a part of. Maybe I should have just said only things that I do. I preach or I teach or I do this, I do that. I'm, I'm at every single one of these events and we do this and I'm a part of making sure this happens and, and we can list off a thousand things. But none of those things are the goal. None of those things are the primary purpose. All of those things are responses to the fact that we love Jesus Christ. And if they're not... I hope you, they're worthless. They're not it. Because there is no way we should accept being commended for a whole bunch of works and then have Jesus say, but I don't think you love me. Notice what he says. Listen to how strong he says, like what he says needs to happen. Because this isn't just kind of a, oh, well, if you get a chance to change your attitude about this stuff. Notice what he says. I feel that you have, or I, I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Verse 5. So, so what are they supposed to do? 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. So the first thing he tells him to do, remember what it used to be like when you really, truly did love and chase after me? Bring it back to your mind. And look at the next word. Repent. That word's significant here. I was looking through it. I was trying to figure out, can the word repent be used if Jesus isn't saying that what you're doing is sin? The word repent basically means to turn from. To turn from something to something else. But almost every single time in Scripture that the word repent, I want to say every, but I'm not sure that I can say that. Almost every time the word repent is used in Scripture, it's in reference to sin. So he's not saying, listen, you're doing a lot of really good stuff. You've kind of slipped up a little bit. If you wouldn't mind adjusting the love a little bit because it would be better if it were that way. No. He's saying, you don't love me anymore, and that's a problem. You're making a big deal about all these other sins that are in your church, and you're not allowing them, but you're going to not love me? It's unacceptable. You must remember what it was like, and you've got to turn. And then, and do the works you did at first. Some of those works might be some of the works that he mentioned earlier, but I don't think that's his main focus. The works that they did at first, I believe, are directly connected to what would allow them to chase after Jesus, to love him the way that they're supposed to love him. These are things like consuming the word of God. These are things like being on your knees in prayer. Listen, if I truly love Jesus the way that I say I love Jesus and the way that I act like I love Jesus, how can I ever not speak about him? How can I go weeks and weeks and weeks without telling someone about my love for Jesus? Am I doing the things that were true when that love was fresh and new and beginning? Or have I kind of matured to the other stuff? You know what Jesus says? I want that honeymoon back. I want you to love me the way that you used to love me. I want you to go back to that. I want you to chase after that. I want you to know me in a greater way. What a shame it is for a body of believers to say, I don't have that much time to be in the Word because I'm busy serving here, 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 and here. Six, eight, ten, twelve hours a week, I'm out serving people, and I'm doing it for this sake, and I can maybe squeeze in five minutes a morning to read the Bible. You know what's happened there? He knows all these works we're doing but he also knows we don't love him. And I know that sounds hard. That sounds harsh. The thing I'm comforted by is, I'm not saying it. Jesus is. He knows all these things. The question
question is, do we love him? He gives a couple other things here. He does give a warning to the church at Ephesus in verse 5. He tells them how to change, remember, repent, do the works that they're supposed that they did at first. He says, if not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. Unless you repent. The warning's pretty straightforward. A church that doesn't love me isn't going to remain to be a church. That should hit pretty hard. By the way, we, we see the crumbling of churches in the United States constantly. A church that doesn't love them isn't going to stay because they're, they're mixed up on what their philosophy is. They're mixed up on what their main goal is. They're, they're not working towards the same thing. The goal is to love Jesus and to know him more. And then finally, he gives an encouragement at the end here. And I want to encourage you with this as well. And Jesus is pointing them to this idea in verse 7. He says this, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Just a real quick on that phrase. This is, those of you who are really listening, please pay attention now, is really what he's saying. Everybody, they, if, if you're actually paying attention, hear what I'm about to say. And then he says, To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And what's awesome about this? If you repent, you remember, you repent, you start doing this. You have heaven and eternity to look forward to being with that one who you truly love. Man, what an encouragement. He could have pointed them to stuff that was temporary and short-sighted and, and not, the main, not the main focus. He didn't point them to something here on this earth. He pointed them to eternity. You conquer. You come through. You turn back to this. And here's what you have to look forward to. I do want to challenge you or uh, just... Be careful with that last phrase there. Um, when you read that, it's very easy for us to try to kind of switch it around and make it say something that it doesn't. Um, there's, there's a, when you study the Bible, there's, there's this concept that exists, especially when a statement is, is conditional. You need to be careful with a conditional statement not to assume that the inverse of the statement is also true. The inverse means to, like, take the statement and kind of negate it. Here's what I mean by that. Let me give you an illustration, and then I'll come back to this. So a conditional statement might say something like, if, if it snows, then school will be canceled. The inverse would say, if it doesn't snow, school will not be canceled. Like, I'm just negating it, Okay we got to be careful because to take the inverse and assume it's true is not always correct. Listen, school could be canceled for a reason other than snow. Right? So to, to say that the inverse of the statement must now be true based upon what the conditional statement said is not always correct. 
So when he says here in this statement, to him who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, just hear the encouragement. Don't try to flip it around and make it condemnation to somebody. We shouldn't be asking the question, but wait a second, Jesus, what happens to those who don't conquer? Why would I ask that question? Why, why would I even want to go there? What am I saying, Jesus, that sounds like a lot of work. Um, I'd rather not work at conquering. Can you tell me what will happen? Who cares? That's not my focus. My goal here is to love Jesus the way that I'm supposed to. He's giving an encouragement here. And the encouragement is conquer. You have heaven to look forward to. It's right there. All you have to do is return to this love that you had. So do we love Jesus? Do we love him today more than we did the day that he saved us? Because if, if we don't, if we've lost it, he's calling us back to it. He knows the works we do. He knows the things you're a part of. But the things you're a part of, the works that you do, your toil, your work, your struggle, your impatient endurance, your hating of evil, your standing opposed to people who teach things that are false, none of those things are directly connected or must happen by people who love him. Your first goal is to chase after Jesus and to love him. And if we don't, we need to repent. And I think all of us can be challenged with a greater desire to run after him. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that we can see this letter and be able to study and, and read it. God, I pray that we're challenged to love you more. I pray that that is our first focus, our main focus, our goal. We want to know you the way you, you've saved us, your faithfulness to us, the way you love us, God. Give us the strength, the boldness, the desire to know you more and more each and every day. And may the things that we do be a direct result of that love that we have for you. In Jesus' name, amen.